Hey everybody, welcome to the first episode of the Roman Rojas podcast. My name is Roman and every week I'll bring you my conversations with best-selling authors, Grammy Award winners, journalists, actors, business leaders, TV personalities, everyday people that have interesting stories to tell. Subscribe to my podcast on iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. In today's episode, I talked to ad agency owner and creative director Danilo Alvarez about his experience being kidnapped in Colombia in 2011, along with his girlfriend Geraldine, and how he was able to outsmart his captors and survive the ordeal. Danilo, my friend, thank you so much for uh, giving me your time today uh, to come to your place. And uh, I already introduced you and what this podcast podcast is going to be about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's about you being kidnapped in yeah. Colombia back in the year when? That was 2010. In 2010. 2020, 2010, 2011, something like that. Yeah, it was a fun time. <laughs> <laughs> it was kidnapping boot camp. I tell everybody that it was a kidnapping boot camp, boot camp because it wasn't, you know, a lot of these kidnappings and end, end up in a really bad, you know, end up being really, really bad. And uh, there were so many things that could have gone wrong. And, uh, and well, I'm here. So I guess it didn't end up that bad, no? Nine years later. Um, so that you guys know, Danilo and I have known each other for many years and we have worked worked together on advertising campaigns and that sort of thing. He's a creative director and uh, he has his own advertising agency in here in New York. But I, I always wanted to interview him about this experience of being kidnapped, which is so unusual. Mm-hmm. And the way that I found out about his kidnap, his kidnapping, I mean, was that I was on Facebook and I see everyone saying, oh my God, you guys made it back. You guys are okay. Oh my God, that was horrible. I, so I knew right away Something had happened with Danilo and his ex-girlfriend, Geraldine. I don't know how everybody found out about it. Like, we hadn't told anybody. I mean, obviously, my parents knew about it. My sister knew about it. And probably a few people who were very, very close to us knew about it. But the news just, you know, they grew like wildfire. They went, everybody knew about it in the next couple of days. So we started getting a lot of, um, you know, notes of love and you know, and, and just people saying that they were glad that we were okay immediately within the first two days. Let's go to the beginning of the story. Mm-hmm. I know you were going out that night in Colombia. What part of Colombia? Well, we were about 30 minutes away from Cali in, um, in a little village called um, El Saladito. Probably one of the closest uh, villages to where we were was called El Saladito. And this is um, a very rural area. Uh, and the city, the closest city is Cali, which is maybe the second, third biggest city in, in the country. And, you know, we were in a time that was a little dangerous. It wasn't as uh, as bad as it was back back in the day. But there was some violence going on. There's always been unrest. There's always been uh, people who are extremely poor, but with access to guns, which is a, a, a really bad mix. And it happens a lot in Latin America. And, um, and we were staying at my dad's house at the time he lived outside the city, about 30 minutes out of the city. And, um, and he begged us not to go down to the city to celebrate my cousin's birthday. But, you know, we had been staying with him for a few days. We hadn't moved. We hadn't seen anything outside his house just to, just to make sure nothing bad happened. But that night we said, you know, let's just take one chance. And, and go down to the city. And even as we had decided that we were going to go to the city, which is, again, 30 minutes away, uh, they said, why don't you just get a hotel down in the city and stay there? I, I also had family there. I just said, it's not going to be a big deal. You know, we'll just drive to the city, party for a little bit, and around 2 a.m., we'll head back. It, everything's going to be fine. And my dad had, my dad gave us his car and he said, you know, I really think that you should either stay down in Cali for the night or just not go. But since you decided that you're going to go and come back, please keep, keep us, you know, keep us informed. 
at the time, um, iPhones were out, but they weren't working in Colombia. And I had an iPhone and I told my dad, listen, to be honest, I'm not going to bring my phone because it doesn't really work in Colombia. And I don't want to be walking around dando papaya, which is a, a Colombian expression that means, you know, uh, becoming a possible victim. Dando papaya means to give papaya, right? <laughs> yeah, give papaya literally, but but the meaning of it is like putting yourself out there in a in a position where you can become a victim, and uh, and that's a very typical expression in Colombia. Don't do it, you know. Don't give papaya. Even now in Medellin, that a lot of tourists speak English, they go down there. You'll see a lot of signs saying "Don't give papaya," which means don't put yourself in a position where you can become a victim. No, the signs are not in English. Are they in Spanish? No, de papaya. <laughs> in English, don't give papaya. In, in Medellin, there is such a huge um, tourist. There's so many uh, American and Australian and German tourism. There's so much tourism in, in Medellin that they have they have made a ton of signs in English to to try to help people not become victims in these societies that are made of, you know, Uh, different tiers and usually the lower tiers are always looking for a papayaso or for an opportunity where they can go out there and and make some money off of you. you know? All right, guys. So when you go travel to Colombia and you see the signs, don't give papaya. That means don't be hanging out with your goods, your iPhone, you know, your expensive uh, jewelry. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so let's go on. So we head out. Uh, to Cali maybe around 6 or 7 p.m. and we met up with my cousin. We had a we had a little party in, in my aunt's house and after that we decided to go out to a club. And going out to clubs in Cali or in Colombia, you know, you gotta be careful. You gotta be careful because there's a lot of a lot of danger out there. Many things can happen starting by someone can, can steal your car or someone can you know, try to uh, steal something from your pockets or hold you up, maybe. It's not usual in the, you know, in the places where there's a lot of people, but this club was outside the city. So we had to go to an area that was kind of sketchy. We partied there, you know, I didn't drink much because I knew I had to drive back. But around 1.30, I said, okay, I'm going to head back home. I don't want to be here too late. Um, Geraldine and I got back on the car and we started driving. Uh, we had to go through the whole city because the club was on the opposite side of the city to where I had to go. And um, we started leaving the city. And as you, as you come out of Cali, Cali is on the bottom of a valley. And it's, it's completely surrounded by, by very tall mountains. So you start going up the mountain, up the mountain, and suddenly, very quickly, There's a mist. There's a mist that just, you know, it, it's naturally occurring in this part. It's, it's very high, very humid. There's obviously a lot of mist. And so it's hard to know what's exactly in front of you. Uh, it'll, there, it'll give you a visibility of maybe, you know, a hundred feet or something. So it is, it is kind of mysterious. It is a little gloomy and there's not a lot of lights. These, these roads, they're not very nicely lit. There's not a lot of budget for, lamps all through these huge mountains so so most of these roads are very dark and um suddenly we were coming up uh, to a curve a very long curve that kind of hides a certain area of the road you can't see it from you know from very far and on top you had the mist suddenly while i was driving i saw that there was um a roadblock basically uh, like an army roadblock they had put on some signs. They had some signs on the floor, some cones, you know, um, national army is what they'll say. And I saw about six guys wearing uh, the, the army uniform. They were dressed in, in a camo uniform. And seeing that immediately, I, I had like a, like, I immediately felt something was wrong. It was a little scary immediately. Why? Because this was a very, very dark and lonely road. Um, and also because Colombia has always been known by, you know, people impersonating the, uh, the army and, and being really, really bad people. Um, when I was growing up, since this is something that is well known, you always look at their boots 
if they have the typical, you know, thick uh, rubber boots, not the not the army boots, that's how you knew that they were guerrilla and not army. But these guys had the army boots and they had the the uh, G three rifles, assault rifles that are the ones that the that the army has. So I thought if I try to run, they're probably gonna shoot us down, and and it was just Geraldine and me. Was it an actual roadblock? There was something blocking the road. It was. Was it just them blocking the it's road? Just them blocking blocking the road and signs, signs, cones, and and people and six guys, right? Now, something that I haven't told you yet is that uh, Geraldine had traveled with her son, who at the time was about maybe maybe four or five years old, is what I'm thinking. Uh, maybe six years old, and uh, we had brought we brought him to Colombia because we wanted him to experience like all the beauty of this country. That country is so pretty. Where my dad lived is so pretty. There's, he can run around with chickens and farm animals, and there's fruits in the trees. It's such a beautiful, nice area that at night, especially in the darkest uh, corners of it, gets very, very dangerous. And you'll you'll get to know a little bit more about why. Uh, as the story progresses. So um, so the kid was waiting for us at home. And it was also one of the reasons why Geraldine didn't want to stay down in, in the city because we wanted to come back to him. You know, because he obviously, in case he woke up in the middle of the night, he was going to be asking, where's my mom? He was with your dad. He was with my dad, pretty much. Which, you know, there wasn't much of a relationship there. It was like they, they had just met. They had, you know... They knew each other very, you know, from a couple trips maybe, but that's it. It wasn't much of the real of our relationship. So we're just gonna go down for a couple of hours, come back, and and hopefully, you know, the kid was fine and he hadn't, you know, he was having a good time throughout. And obviously my dad wasn't too, you know, you know, my dad was older already. He he didn't wanna be probably left alone for too long with the kid. So anyway, um, we're on the way back. I see the, the roadblock and I decide to stop. Uh, so we stop and the guy, one of the six guys comes over to my window. He says, roll down the window. I roll it down. He says, good evening. Um, are you coming from the city? I say, yeah, yeah, we're coming from the city. Have you been drinking? So I say, no, we haven't. I had a couple beers. I wasn't, I wasn't drunk. Mm. And then he said, do you have any weapons? And I said, no, I don't have any weapons. Up to there, it's a very typical, you know, it was the, the typical way in which the army conducts Checks. one of these, yeah, typical checkpoints, right? So then he says, can you please allow me a pat down, which is also protocol. So normally in Colombia, they ask you to get out of the car. They pat you down to check if you have weapons. So I got out of the car. He asked me to put my hands on the on the roof of the car and he started patting me down. And as he was patting me down, I felt like someone hit me so hard in the back of my head that it wrung me. Like everything around me was like, where am I? What's going on? And at that point, I realized that we were under attack. Um, even though I was, I was still like, conscious and and a little bit like coming out of the shock of being hit so hard in the back of my head um i grabbed i turned around and i grabbed the guy who was behind me and i grabbed his gun which at, at the time like was was what, like a reflex right mm -hmm. it was just like a reflex i grabbed the gun and we started just like like fighting for the gun and uh and at that point i turned to look at geraldine and now I see that two guys are pulling her out through the window of the car and she's fighting them. Like this girl, and she's strong. She's a tall girl, um, very thin, but I mean, not thin. She's got, she's, she's pretty fit and she was fighting these guys like to death. Obviously two dudes with weapons holding her down. It was, there was, there was that's, no fight. That's crazy. Yeah. It was, it was one of the craziest things that I've ever seen. And while I was seeing them carry her away into the jungle, 
um, I was I was like, you know, trying to grab this guy's this guy's gun, and suddenly I felt another hit. Now on the back of my legs, which just bent my knees, and I went down on the on the ground. And as I started to get back up again, I saw one of these things that have always been one of those images that I can't forget about that night. It was the bottom of one of these boots, the sole of the boots coming straight towards my face. I don't think it's not something that you usually see up close. <laughs> wow. And and of course, this guy just kicked me in the face and that that's it. I... At that point, like I stopped fighting. I realized there was no fight there. Like I was on the ground and the guys were on top of me. Mm. Six guys, right? There were six guys. Two were with Geraldine. Two were with me. And there were two other guys that I have no idea where they were. I mean, I really, I, all I can remember hearing is my own voice, my own screaming, hoping that somebody in the area would hear where we were, because I knew the moment these people took us into the jungle, that was it. You know, we weren't gonna, we weren't gonna be alive. That we weren't gonna walk out alive from that. For two reasons: the first one, because when we arrived at the roadblock, these guys had no masks. They all, they all were wearing um, their uniform, no mask. So you can see their faces. So I, I you saw you their can faces. I mean, I never, every time that I see those, those TV shows where they say, describe, you know, describe the, the criminal, it's like, I don't, I don't remember. I wish they could believe me that I cannot remember what their face why, is. Like. Why do you think you can't remember? Because your adrenaline is just rushing. Like everything is so, you know, it, it's somebody, somebody else's face. You know? Till this day, you can't remember their faces. There's no way. There's no way. If the guy was sitting next to me in the subway, I wouldn't know it's him. I wouldn't know. But, but I was thinking, these guys, they're going to take us down into the jungle. And, and from the jungle, we're never going to walk out. You know, the, the, the most logical thing at that point is to shoot us both in the head. Hopefully, as quickly and as painful, painlessly as possible. But I knew at that point, there's, there's no chance. There's no chance for us. So two of the guys get, got on the car or in, in the car, maybe one of them, and the car disappeared immediately. Meanwhile, um, something very, very strange happened. Very strange. It's probably one of the strangest things that I as I was being taken, as we were both being taken down into, you know, down, down a mountain, just walking down a mountain uh, towards, you know, just like the bottom where there was like a little creek in absolute darkness. Because again, it's 2, 2 a.m. Were they lighting the way with lights or something? Or? Nothing. There was no lights. Well, um, did they have any lights themselves? Mm -mm, nothing. They just knew the area. Yeah, they were just walking down, down this um, this jungle path, and but the craziest thing is that as they were taking me down there and taking us both down, they were doing something very very strange. Mm, they were saying like when when one of them would took let's say one of my rings, he would take my ring and he would say, "Don't tell anybody you had this ring." It's like what. But this was happening very, very fast. Like, the, don't tell anybody that I took the ring. Mm, that, that's what he meant. No, don't take, don't tell anybody that you had this ring. But it was your ring. I didn't know what it meant, but you'll find out later what that means. So, so he's like, don't tell anybody you had this ring. Don't tell anybody you had this watch. Don't tell anybody you had this chain. Oh, God, I understand. I think I understand now. So your own stuff, but he, yeah, they took it they're, away. They're taking it, taking it, taking, taking my rings, taking, taking my watch, taking my chain. That was a clue that helped you get out of this mess, right? Eventually, it would become one of the reasons why, that, that helped me get out of it. Uh, and they were doing the same with Geraldine, but we were very confused. Everything at this point, when things like these are happening, your your brain is not working that well. It's just, you're like, completely, you know, immersed in fear. And um, they were, they took our shoes. They took Geraldine's shoes. Geraldine was, we were partying. So she was wearing a very short skirt, 
in a in kind of a small shirt. Wow. That's and, yeah. that's crazy. And they were just taking us taking us like that into the jungle. She was barefoot at that point. Were you barefoot too? Yeah, I was I was wearing socks. And we we're just going into the jungle. And and I just thought in my head, the only thought that went through my mind all the time over and over and over was like you are a privileged person. You were educated. You went to school. You There is something that you have above these guys. And it's, you're an intelligent person. You, you have been all over the world. You, you, you create communication strategies for huge companies. What is the communication strategy that's going to get you out of this? And I just kind of relied on that. And I said, okay, you have to listen. You have to talk. You have to build a bond with these people. Like I tried to use everything that I knew about advertising in that situation. Wow. That's, this is like a crash course on hostage negotiations, but you are the hostage and you're the negotiator. I guess so. I guess so. <laughs> Besides, there was nobody who was, who was going to help us. Nobody would know where we were. Even if, if someone drove past this area you know, five minutes after they kidnapped us, they wouldn't have known that we were there. We weren't there anymore. We were, you know, the the road, let's say, is up up on the hill. And now at that time, we were down the hill in the absolute darkness inside a jungle. A jungle as, you know, as a, as a um, rainforest can get. Like, imagine a thick, thick rainforest. So they take us down there. And they tie us, they tie our hands and they sit us one next to the other as they, as they talk, you know, they're talking, talking, talking. And I'm like, at this point, I'm thinking we're about to hear a shot, you know, and that shot is going to be us. Uh, I was just waiting for that. But, but at the same time, I'm trying to talk to these guys like, Hey, Hey, wait a second. You know, who are you? Let me tell you what I, you know, I, I really feel bad for you guys. I feel like you guys have been, are really the victims here. You know, I can see that you, you have received no um, opportunities from the government. So as I'm talking, like, I'm just trying to talk myself. Did you actually say something like that? Yeah, yeah, I was saying exactly that. Stuff like that. Just trying to become... Uh, trying to bond with these guys in some way. Um, and one of them just had enough. And he just hit me with the rifle in the head really hard. And that was my cue, like, shut the fuck up. So I shut up. And at that point, I felt like, okay, I have nothing. Like, I, I can't talk. Um, they're on to me. And, and, and I feel so bad because now because of me, this woman is going to be dead that kid is going to grow up without a mom and and my parents are going to be looking for us for years because they're not going to know what happened they're they're not going to know if we got kidnapped if we're still alive if we're not i mean I, i've been in situations like this when people are presumed to be alive but most probably dead but people hold on to the hope until they see a body you know and that that feeling destroys you it destroys families so I felt like it was a, a very critical moment in my life and in the life of a lot of people. The fact that I had, I had uh, disobeyed the suggestions of my family, of the people who lived in the country. I, I, I thought that I knew the country, but after having lived outside the country for you know, 10 or 15 years at the time, um, I, I didn't. I didn't know the country that well. I was giving papaya. And um and I was I felt so bad. I was I I felt like I had made a mistake that would cost people their lives, you know, physically and also maybe emotionally, you know. So um so at that point is when they started asking me for what they usually ask for, which is uh ransom information, right? Like who uh like give me your parents' names and, and phone number. But usually they don't ask you for their numbers, they go into your phone 
for your for your contacts. They look for mom, they look for dad, and that's how they make the phone call. And they say, "We got these people here. You know, you need to you need to give us give us this amount of money." But if you remember correctly, I didn't bring my phone. So you you had no phone. I had no phone. And Geraldine had no phone. Which I'm was, sure that pissed them off big time. Oh my God, they were so pissed off. They're like, how come somebody don't doesn't have a phone? Yeah. I'm like, I know it sounds weird, but I don't own a phone. That's that's a the craziest line, you know, you could have and, uttered. And it was one of the one of the many lies I told them from there on. And I'm not a very good liar, but at that point when you have That's a terrible lie. Yeah, it's a pretty bad lie, but but it just it was just one. You'll hear some other interesting lies as as this process continues. So they said, "What do you mean that you don't have a phone?" Yeah, I don't have a phone. So how do you call your parents? I'm like, "Well, you know, I haven't lived in Colombia for a while. I live in Venezuela." And the reason why I told them I live in Venezuela but was because at the same time while while they were kind of um questioning us, one of them was looking at my camera and he was going through all of these pictures that were not in Venezuela they were in the United States but the- wow that's that okay that sets off you know alarms you know not alarms but they're like wow they have dollars somewhere yeah i had to make them i had to uh, uh, stop them from thinking or from knowing that i lived in the United States but in my wallet there were dollars there was a There was an ID in English. There were a lot of documents in English. Um, and and all I could do at the time was try to make them think that it that even though I didn't live in this country, I didn't live in the US either. So I told them, you know, we live in Venezuela. We don't have, you know, our phone doesn't work here, so we didn't bring it. So how do you call your parents? Well, you know, I would I, I, I call them when I have my phone with me, but I don't know their phone numbers. So that that got them very very angry. So of course, as they're going through the pictures, there's like, where's this picture? And it's like a picture of Geraldine and me in Williamsburg playing in the snow. Williamsburg is in Bro- <laughs> in Brooklyn, New York, where we live. We don't live in Williamsburg. We live in Manhattan, but it's right next to Manhattan. Yeah, Williamsburg is so. It's one of the closest <laughs> parts of Brooklyn next to Manhattan, and and we were playing in the snow, and they're like, where's this? I'm like that's in Venezuela. And <laughs> no, you didn't say that. Yeah. You told him. You told him that was in Venezuela. Yeah, okay. There was snow in the picture. Okay. There's a part in Venezuela in the mountains. The only place where there's snow is Pico Bolivar, Bolivar uh, Mountain. It's about five thousand meters high. Mm-hmm. So that would have been the only place. And the only reason why I decided to go that way, that route, is because I could tell that they weren't very smart. They they were not smart at all, and I consider myself. I was I was playing the card of being the smartest person in that group, so I was just really gonna try to play this as much as I could. <laughs> you know, a picture of the Eiffel Tower here in Geraldine. <laughs> you, 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 yeah, that's in Venezuela, man. You know, these people were country people. I could tell by the way they spoke. I, I could tell by the way they they treated us. I so their world was a different world. You know, yeah. their vision of the world. So what you did was, I'm going to play with their vision of the world you know, impose my vision of the world and kind of like lie. Yeah. At this point, people knew that Venezuela wasn't doing too well. It was kind of a known fact, but I don't know if they knew about it. I don't even know if they knew what Venezuela was. <laughs> the snow, that, that, <laughs> that's funny. But, but it, it also the part with the dollars, you know, they took out a dollar. They said, what's this? And I'm like, oh, that's Venezuelan money. And they no said, way. They said, oh. No way. They said, how much is it? how much is it worth? And I said, oh, more or less the same as the peso. But no way. You, a dollar and they bought it? They couldn't read it. They couldn't read what it said. They were completely uh, illiterate. Wow. That's were, crazy. That, that's, that's when I got face to face with the real danger of the countries that we live in and that we come from. That is the problem. There is no conscience. There's no awareness. There's no knowledge of any kind. There's no education. And they're, you know, they don't, they don't have any other skills, and they're forced to do this kind of yeah. work. Yeah. And they, and since there is no awareness, no conscious consciousness, they are, they feel or they believe that if you have a car, if you have a phone, if you have any means 
um, or any kind of money, you are the devil. You're a bad person, and 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 you you should suffer because they suffer for not having money. Therefore, if you have money, you're the enemy. We're going for a short commercial break, and we'll be right back with the conclusion to Danilo Alvarez's story being kidnapped in Colombia. Welcome back to the Roman Rojas podcast. And here's the conclusion to Danilo's story of kidnapped in Colombia. So, um, so they were going through our, through the pictures and, and he was saying, um, you know, um, uh, where's this, where the, the pictures were different pictures in Manhattan and Williamsburg. Cause she, at the time she lived in Williamsburg. I lived, um, lived the whole time in Manhattan. And I kept saying, that's in Venezuela, that's in Bogota. I would say Bogota. I would say like other cities in Colombia. Um, and when they saw dollars, they, I told them, yeah, that's Venezuela money. And, um, what's this document? Or oh, that's the Venezuelan ID. You know, they were asking all this stuff in English. But since they didn't read, they yeah, didn't know. They couldn't read Spanish. They, they, of course, they weren't going to be able to read English. So, so how how old were these guys? They're all like teenagers. They they must have been. I think the oldest one was probably eighteen or twenty years old. That's that's heartbreaking. Yeah, yeah, it was really sad. So so as time goes by, they um, at this point they they have put on some sweaters covering their faces and now now they have become like the typical face of evil that you see in magazines or that you see in newspapers and they had um they they did something that terrified Geraldine I mean not that she wasn't terrified every second of this uh, of this whole ordeal but the moment these guys showed up with um bags over their shoes that's where she lost it that like the whole like she kept thinking and and I'll tell you more about what she was thinking at the end I'm going to bags you. over her shoes over their their shoes, shoes. what do yeah. you mean bags so imagine imagine like shopping bags like after you go to the supermarket and you come out of the supermarket and you have those plastic bags imagine you putting your shoe and your foot inside one and making a knot so the so the plastic covers your your shoe and and she saw that and she immediately thought it's for the blood, you know, so that they don't have blood on their shoes. Um, it was a very, very scary scene, just seeing these guys show up now with their face covered with sweaters and their and their and and bags on their shoes was one of the scariest things that I've ever seen in my life. Um as as we were there, you know, um, sitting down and waiting for stuff to happen, uh, they kept asking us how to contact my parents or our parents. I told them there's really no way. I the only, you know, I was gonna drive back home, but now I can get back back home. I don't have a way to to um, to reach them. So they said, "Do you have money?" And I said, "Yeah, I have some money." And they said, um, "Okay, we want to get all of your money." You're like. I'm like, okay, sure, you can you can take it all. And they said, okay, um, the people who were in the car, they were heading down towards the city, which is where they can find the ATMs. Was it your dad's car? It was my dad's car, which never was never recovered. And they had they had my wallet. So they called on the phone and they were like, hey, give us the PIN number for your cards. So I'm like, okay. So I gave her the PIN number for every single card. Um and uh, and they started going like to to different ATMs, but the things that back back then there there were only certain ATMs which would accept American bank cards. Like my cards were Bank of America, you know, so they they couldn't just go into any bank and try to get money. Most of the banks there won't accept it, or at the time wouldn't. Still now, there's a few that won't take your cards. But they didn't know that. They just went to the first one that they that they found and they tried to get money. So as we were sitting there waiting for them to get the money out, I kept thinking, you know, I, I don't care about the money. I just hope they don't kill us. But at the same time, I was pretty sure that they were going to kill us. And I'm thinking, how do I try to make friends with these guys? And I started talking to them, like, like trying to talk to them because I thought it would make it harder for them to shoot us. You know, but the first shift had ended and we had another two kids who were 
probably the most evil people that I've ever met in my life. These kids, one of them had um, had um, uh, a picture of of uh, Geraldine's son, Sid, that from her from her purse. She had found a picture of him, and he took it out and he was showing it to her and telling her, "Say goodbye to your boy because you're never gonna see him again." Man, that's that's dark. Mm -hmm. And and he tell her, "You're never gonna see him again, por puta." You're never going to see him again because you're a whore. And and she is like, what are you talking you know, it, it really got to her. Like, what are you talking about? She's like, look, at, he's like, look at you. Look at you, what you're wearing. Instead of being at home with your son, you're, you're partying. You know, what kind of whore are you? You're the worst mother ever. Seems like they were trying to, but doing that so they can squeeze whatever information they could out of you. Yeah. Not of her, right? I mean, that's, that's that's one way to look at it. Another way is just they were just very angry. They just wanted to make you suffer. You know, they felt like finally we got these two, these two evil rich people, and we're gonna make them suffer every step of the way. I don't mean to interrupt you. You know the story because it's a very intense story. But that's what's a recipe for disaster with governments in Latin America when it comes to uh, inequality and all that, that's been happening throughout history in Latin America, that so many, then you get these dictators that kind of feed off that kind of thing mm -hmm. and, and gather support because of people that feel that way. So you know? many people feel that way. They have hate for, yeah. for people who have money. And, and I try to tell them, look, listen, I, we're not the enemy. I, yes, we have a little bit of money, but I have worked every day of my life for my money. I, like... Since I was little, I went to school. After school, I went to the army. After the army, I started working. My life has been working every single day since I can remember. Um, why? How about you guys? How about you? Do you do you guys work? And then they started opening themselves to me, which was finally I got a little bit of traction from what I was trying to do. And they're like, "No, man, you can't work here." I'm like, I'm sure there's work, you know, there's, there's land to be, you know, sowed, you know, uh, crops to be sowed. You have, you know, there's so much out here that you can do. And they're like, yeah, well, we do it, but we don't get paid. I'm like, man, I feel so sad for you. So sorry for you. I, I, I wish I could do something. I just, I didn't know that, that your situation was so bad. Like, he's like, yeah, my mom is sick. She's sick and she can't work and I try to work and they never give me jobs. And if they give me a job, they won't pay me. That's amazing that he started, they started opening up to you. That's really a miracle. Yeah, it was uh, it, finally after hours and hours of trying to talk to these people, these two who were the scariest and the most evil ones. They opened actually, up. Were actually the ones who wanted to talk. But it, it didn't come easy. There were moments that were good and there, there were moments when... I remember this one kid, he had, um, he had a little radio or some kind of a, a, a player of some sort. Maybe it was a little phone. And he started playing a very sick, you know, uh, you know, Spanish hip hop, Spanish rap type of song about shooting and killing people. And I could tell that that's the music that they listen to, you know, music about killing people. And, and he was singing it to us and like shooting us with his, like with his hands, like, 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 like we were the enemy and like he wanted to shoot us and he's singing and mocking us as he's singing and rapping in our faces. So that was also very, very scary. It felt like we really felt a type of rage and anger towards us that I've never felt in my life. Somebody really, really hated me without knowing me and, and there was nothing I could do to change that. Wow. So it was a general hate being directed towards whatever victim they got that night. Anybody who they stopped, anybody who they pulled over, that was the enemy because, because they had enough money to drive a car or because they had enough money to not be, you know, in absolute poverty. And, and that's what they were doing. They were really trying to scare us. They were really trying to make us feel bad. And then the, the phone call came. And the phone call was from the guys who were in Cali trying to, trying to get money out of the of the ATM and they weren't getting any money out of the ATM. And they're like, you lied to us. You're dead. You're like, I'm like, what are you saying? Like, do you think that I would lie to you? I'm really trying to give you everything that you're asking me for. 
um, I'm not lying to you. So, so he's like, I know that you're lying to me because you, you gave me these numbers and I'm, uh, you, you gave me these numbers and those are not the numbers that, you know, your pin is not giving me any, any money. Are you sure you have money there? I'm like, yeah, I told you. How much money do you have? And I, I don't know. I had maybe, I don't know, maybe $5,000. But can you imagine trying to tell someone that you have $5,000? Like they're going to be like, how much is that? And the amount in pesos is so ridiculous that, you know, they, they would immediately think that I was some kind of millionaire, which, you know, it's not the case. But to them, it's way more than a normal person in Colombia would have. A lot of money. Well, for Colombia or for someone in Colombia. You know? for, for Venezuela, today, that, w that would be literally a fortune today. Yeah. Well, that, that was the situation. So I didn't want to tell him exactly how much money there was there. But I told him, oh, you know, about a million pesos, which is like $300. And, and they're like, oh, well, we can't get anything out. And they were super, super angry. Like you could tell that they thought that I was messing with them. So... So I just kept almost like crying to them, like, listen, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna mess around with my life and my girlfriend's life. I am trying to give you this money. Just get the money, get the money now. Um, so they would hang up and, and leave us with these two kids. And one of them, there was a point in which he had a little phone, like a little super shitty little phone. And he's filming us now. He's filming us while he's telling us how we're gonna die. He's telling us how, wow. how they're going to kill us, how they're going to shoot us, how they're going to leave their bodies there to, to be eaten by animals. And he's filming our reaction with his phone. Geraldine is obviously, she's crying, crying, crying. And, and I'm like, man, don't, don't say that. Why do you hate me so much? Like, I haven't done anything to you. Like, I, it's not my fault what you're going through. Like, I'm really trying to understand what's going on with you. But, but it's really, I, I didn't do this to you. You need to understand. Yeah, but you're rich and the money should be everyone's money. And that's where you start to see that, you know, so uh, this, this type of communist um, propaganda that the guerrilla does in the areas. And that's what they grow up understanding. That's why it's so attractive. Yeah, it tells them like, imagine, imagine if you had the same money that everybody else has. You know, and, and these, the, the way they teach these kids is that they tell them, look at these assholes. Look at these assholes with all the money and you with no money. That's completely unfair. They should all die. And that's the first time I actually felt it in real, you know, in real life because you hear it a lot. You hear, for example, now that they're doing all these riots in Latin America and people trying to, to, this, to, to, to follow these communist teachings, And really what you're going to get out of that is a lot of people who just have hate in their heart. They don't even understand that that's not a viable, you know, government system. It's just, it just putting hate in their hearts. Um, it, it, it's, it's making every, everything feel unfair to them. And that, that lack of balance is what, make, what makes them so dangerous because they have no education, but they have a lot of passion and they have the guns. So... Geraldine and I, whenever they gave us a few minutes to sit there and think, we were like, hey, what did you think about this whole thing of them saying, don't tell anybody you had this. Don't tell anybody you had this. What was that about? And we're like, we're trying to figure it out. And at some point we have this moment of realization, realization that, that we just go like, oh my God, they're stealing from each other. Really what these people were doing was whenever one of them found out that I had a ring, he would pull it and put it in his pocket. And then the other one, when he saw he, I, he had access to my watch, he would take the watch and put it in his pocket. He didn't want to share it, which was like a, a, a big moment for us because we realized they weren't as organized as we thought they were. They weren't the guerrilla, the serious guerrilla that we thought they were. They were something slightly dangerous because they were just a bunch of crazy people with, with, uh, with guns and with the power to take your life, but no organization of any kind. No leader. There was no leader there, really. 
there was one leader, but he wasn't very smart either. Let's say you have a 20-year-old leader who all he knows is how to get some camo uniforms and some guns. And, and that's it. That's all they knew. And they were just angry and they had no organization. They were whoever had whoever could get their hands on something would try to keep it for themselves. And at some point we realized we had a strategy. And the strategy was we were trying to make them think that they were going to be the ones that everybody stole everything from. So when the next phone call came in from the guys in Cali trying to pull the money out of the ATMs, um, we told them, man, I'm telling you, just try this again. Try the same pin again. I give you the right pin. Try it again. He's like, okay, give me the pin again. I'm like, this is the pin. And they were like, yeah, that's the pin you told us before. It's not working. I'm like, I promise it's working. Try it again. I swear to you on my mom that that is, that that is the right pin. So they hung up the phone again. And, you know, the interval between phone calls was around two hours. By this time, it was maybe, I don't know, 1 p.m. or 2 p.m. 1 p.m. in the afternoon. Yeah. And so 12 hours. Yeah, 12 hours later, they were still trying to trying to get this money out of the ATMs. Um. So, so it's daylight now. Yeah, it's daylight, but we're in the jungle. There's no way for anybody to see us. We're, we're deep, deep, deep in the jungle. And at this time, we've been all night sitting on the ground, sitting on, on this like crazy, you know, dirt, dirt and trees and, and mosquitoes and, and did, bugs. Did, did, they, did they give you anything to drink? Did they let you go to the bathroom? No, no nothing. Nothing. They didn't let us go to the bathroom. They didn't let us drink. Geraldine was pretty much wearing the shortest skirt she could and sitting down on the dirt. The whole time I was thinking, oh my God, they're going to rape Geraldine. I don't, I don't know what I can do if this happens, you know, but these kids, they were just, they had so much hate in their heart that it wasn't even like, oh, we're going to rape this girl. It's just like, we want the money and we want these assholes to pay. Um, which was like, to me, was surprising, was surprising. And, and the whole time in my head, I was just saying, whenever they shoot us, cause they're going to shoot us at some point when they have the money, they're just going to shoot. Um, and I wanted in my mind, I wanted my head right next to Geraldine so that when they shot me, the shoot, the, the, the bullet would go through my head and shoot through her head because I didn't want to be dead and leave her alive with them. Like I thought that would be the worst case scenario, like dying and leaving her there to be raped and, and tortured and, and eventually killed. Like I felt like if I died that way, it would have been the worst possible death. So every time that we're sitting there by ourselves and they left and they came back kind of creeping right behind us, that's when I thought, here's the gun. It's coming towards me. And I would put my head right next to hers And I would just beg God, please, one bullet, two people. <clears throat> so eventually another phone call came in. And um, and these guys were, were so angry, so angry, so angry. Like you could tell their anger. And they're like, yo, give us the money or we're going to tell them to kill you, blah, blah, blah. Again. Same story, try it again, go to another ATM, see if it works. But the moment they hung up, we decided to use our strategy, the strategy that we had been like secretly like talking amongst ourselves. And the moment they hung up the phone, we told them, you know what? You know what? I know what is happening here. We gave them the right pin number and we know that those cards work. So what just happened is that those guys down there, the ones in Cali that are out in the street with the car, having fun in the sun while you guys are here with us, they got all the money. They took the money out and they're making all these theater, all these crazy stories, telling you all these stories that they couldn't find the money, but they actually did find the money. They have the money and they're telling you this because they're calling the cops on you right now. And if the cops come, they're going to find you with us and they're going to be off the hook. They're going to be able to keep the money and you're going to be in trouble. You're going to go to jail. Wow. That's, I mean, that, that's a play that you got. You, you guys played that card and 
what a huge risk mm -hmm. too. It was super scary, but we had nothing to lose. And, and we were pretty sure that they were going to bite because of what we had learned about them. They, we learned that they had no allegiance. There, were the, there was no, you know, there was no respect for each other. They just all, they were all there for their own benefit. And that was really the piece of information that we were able to use against them. And it just went in like a charm. It just worked, bro. And, and that moment, they kind of looked at each other and they got, like, I could tell that they got super upset. Like, they immediately realized, holy shit, why did they leave us here? They're, we are clearly the guys who they don't care about. They are really in a car, in the city, hanging out. And, and we really made it big. We told I, and them, it's been a while. It's like 2 o'clock in oh, the afternoon. Yeah, yeah they, left, they left, you know, at 3 a.m. or less. And, and, and this is 2 p.m. These guys haven't eaten. So we exploited that too. We told them, imagine the breakfast they're having right now. Imagine the size of the breakfast they're having right now. Have they told you anything about it? No. Are they going to tell you anything about it? No. And they were so silent and so, you know, they were paying attention to every single one of my words. Wow. They're like, oh, wow, wow. They yeah, bought They bought it. They bought it. And at that point, they decided to like to step to the side and talk amongst themselves. So I told Geraldine, the moment they, they walk past a certain point, you and I are going to start running. But were you guys tied? I was tied with my hands behind my back. So you, would, you, you guys would be running tied up. Yeah, well, she wasn't tied up. Her hands were not tied up. You were. I, my hands were. And you know what's one of the craziest things is that there was, you know how in MacGyver or those shows, like you see them looking for something that, I can, that they can like cut the rope with? Were you trying to do that? I did that. I did that. I found like a little rock and I would go like up and down, up and down, up and down really slowly. And it was so dark. There was no way for them to know, notice that I was doing that. So I would do it, do it, do it until a point that the, 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 the rope was so thin that I know I could snap it. So I'm like, okay, so the moment those guys go over there, because they're going to go and they're going to want to talk over there and they're going to leave us alone. And they're probably going to leave. There is a chance that those two guys are going to leave. Because we made them really believe that those other guys, they were going to use them as, you know, as the scapegoat. They're going to be like, uh, let's spend our money here. Let's forget about the guys up there. They're, let's send the cops. The cops are going to find them and they're not going to look for us ever again. We're off the hook. And, you know, it made sense to them. They felt like that, that was a possibility. So they went over, they, they kind of got separated from us. And, and after a couple of minutes, I told, I told Geraldine, start running. I just started running. And I, I was able to break myself free and started running. And we ran through the jungle for about 30 minutes, just through the jungle. None of us, we both were, we didn't have shoes. She was, she was running completely barefoot. I was running in my socks. And, uh, but for some reason, the, the, the ground was very soft. We didn't find any, you know, we didn't get impaled or anything like that. Like you would think that there's a lot of crazy things like big thorns or anything like that. No, we were able to run through, through the forest and through the jungle with no problem until at some point we heard cars. We, we heard cars pretty close to us. So we, we ran towards the noise. And that was probably one of the last times that I felt an incredible, incredible amount of fear. And was the moment when we saw the sun, when we came out of the jungle which was, it required us to climb on a ledge. Like it was kind of crazy. We had to climb a little bit of a, a, a straight mountain and, you know, and eventually we got out into the street. But it was a mix of feelings. Like, yeah, we're out in the street, but we're also out in the open. Like, and now they can see Now you. they can see us. So we were very scared about that. We were scared of, of them finding us before anybody else did. 
And uh, oh my God, that was probably the most, the, the scariest moment was coming out into the sun and thinking, okay, now anybody can see us, see us including them. So we started running and we, we saw a restaurant and we walked into the restaurant. This was, yeah, it was a time where um, there, there weren't too many people out there because maybe it was right after lunch. Lunch time was gone and not a lot of people have lunch late in that area. There's a little restaurant, a little like country restaurant. And if you've ever been to Colombia, it's not like here, you know, it doesn't feel very commercial. It's just like a little house with some tables in the mountain, you know? So the moment we walked into the restaurant, Geraldine fainted, like she lost her strength and she went down. So I grabbed her and I, and I put her on a chair and, and, the, and the guy at the restaurant, which we had no idea if, we, if he was one of the guys or not. I mean, I was- Or friends a, with the guys. Or friends, you're so paranoid at that point. And, and I told him, we, we just escaped from being kidnapped, can you help me find a phone? So he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. What phone do you want me to call? So I gave him my dad's phone. And he called my dad. Obviously, my dad at this point was worried sick. We had left at 6 p.m. the day before. It was 4 p.m. the next day. and 4 p.m.? Yeah, and they had no idea where we were. They, I mean, they were pretty sure that something really bad had happened. Either we had been drinking and we flew off a cliff or we had been kidnapped or shot or, you know, killed in some other way. It, Colombia has always been kind of a dangerous country. Yes, when you go to the main cities and you stay within the city, you're probably pretty safe. But there are dangers outside the city that, that you know, are well documented and people know about them. And especially Colombians know about them. So she, he, was, he was about to lose hope when he got that phone call. And that phone call was, come and pick your son up here. He's here with his, with his girlfriend. Come and pick them up. So my dad obviously didn't have a car because there was no car. So he called his neighbor and he asked him, hey, can you come help me pick up my son and his, and his girlfriend? They, they just got kidnapped. Um, actually at the time, I think he had already told my, uh, his neighbor because his neighbor was a very well-connected guy in the area. And, um, and they were both kind of like praying and hoping something would happen and almost ready to react to anything. So he called him, he said, Hey, they called, let's go pick them up. So they came, picked us up maybe 20 or 30 minutes later, they showed up, um, at the restaurant and, you know, it was it was a very emotional moment. Like, we hugged them both. We're like, oh, my God, I can't believe we're still alive. And they couldn't believe that we were still alive. You know, that doesn't happen. If you get kidnapped, that's it. Usually, that's the end of it. And, you know, best case scenario is if you just die. Because the other scenario is they start getting money from you. And they milk you and milk you and milk you dry. And then they, you get killed, you know. So, so it was a very... A, a very, you know, unusual and very special moment that we we're coming back after this, this kidnapping boot camp, as I call it, because we were, we were suddenly back home and, um, and my dad, he was bleeding out of his nose profusely. And I could tell that it was because of all the tension that he had been holding, you know, and, and I remember arriving at the house and he's like, he's just trying to wipe all the blood coming out of his mouth. And I felt so, uh, his nose and I felt so bad for him, so bad for all the stress that I had caused. Thank God nobody had told my mom, but they knew that at some point they had to call my mom and let her know. The kid was like, obviously they were trying to hold all these thoughts, all this fear, all these, you know, um, assumptions from the kid because they didn't want to scare him. Just, just the idea of, of him thinking that something had happened to his mom would have been, I mean, it, it would, it, it would have spun everything out of control. But the kid was, the kid was fine. They had been telling him, Oh no, they're fine. They're, they're on their way, you know, and the kid had been, you know, kept busy doing whatever he was doing, chasing chickens or whatever, but he didn't know 
what was going on. Obviously, when we arrived, the first thing she did was give him a big hug and she started crying. And I had, you know, a couple marks in my face, one from the boot that hit me like in my left, my right side of the face. And then the when he hit me with the gun on the head, so I had those big bumps, you know, my face was really kind of like swollen in those two places. And and you could see an incredible amount of stress in our face. Like I, I there's a couple of pictures that we took right after this, took a couple of selfies and you can see in our face, like the suffering and the sadness and the stress of the hours that we had passed in that situation. But after this, what my, what we had to do was we had to go to the police because we had to, we had to, there, there was a claim that we had to do to the insurance, the car insurance, and we had to say that it was stolen. So we were very, very scared to call the police because we felt like it was the same people. You never know. In Latin America, especially, you never know. Mm-hmm. And with police having access to guns and to uniforms, we were thinking there is a chance that, that they were involved. So we had to we had to call the police. And when the guy came, the cop came, uh, he asked us everything, like, tell me everything. What did you see? And we said, we didn't see any faces, which is not true, but... Um, you had to protect yourselves. Yeah, we had to protect ourselves. We said, we didn't see any faces. We we were taken, we were pulled over in this, in this area and taken to this area. And we tried to give directions as well as possible. And he said, oh, those weren't guns. Those were sticks. And I'm like, listen... I went. I went to the army. I had that same, that same um, rifle, the G3. I've seen that rifle. I haven't just seen that rifle. I've, I've put it together and pulled it apart hundreds of times. I know that that uh, assault rifle like the back of my hand, and I know what they hit me in the head with. And he's like, "Yeah, maybe you were confused." So that made me think that he was, you know, in. <coughs> So he said, you know what? I'm going to go check the area where you told me and I'll come back. When he came back, he came back with a bunch of sticks and PVC tubes. And he said, look, here's the proof. Those weren't weapons. Those were just sticks. It's a little weird, isn't it? So weird. Immediately I realized these people have something to do. With- it's a small town too. You know, it's a small town and, and you know, He had to know something for sure. Yeah, he had to know. And either he was involved or he didn't want to get involved. But in the end, what happened is that he's like, you know what? Don't worry about it. They were not going to kill you. They just, they were trying to scare you while they scared the shit out of us. (laughs) That that, that they did do. And, uh, And we said, okay, well, I'm glad they weren't weapons. You know, we just wanted this guy to go away, give us a report so that we could claim the car stolen. And that's what we did. After that, it took me five years to go back to that area because it just gave me panic attacks to even think about it. Just driving out of there to go back to the airport, having to drive by the place where they where they um, where they pulled us over, was so scary that I really understand at a very minimal scale what PTSD can be. And even Geraldine back in New York. A couple, a couple of times when she went to the bathroom or when she was in, you know, in a, in a dark alley or in a lonely street and there were people around her, she would still feel this crazy panic that would paralyze her um, based on, on, the, on the story that we went through. So it, it was something that kind of stayed with us um, and, and that for a while we had, to, we had to adapt to living with that fear until that experience was so far gone that you kind of forget it in your body, in your mind, kind of get over it. Um, but yeah, it was, it was definitely one of the scariest moments that we, that we lived together. And, you know, we, we stayed together for, for a year or so after that. Um, and then, and then we broke up, you know, and we're still very good friends, but some, but you know, it's one of those experiences that unites people in a, in a very special way. Even if we're not together anymore, like, you know, when we look at each other, we're like, yeah, we we barely scraped by out of that situation alive, and and we're happy to still be here. <laughs> that's a that's a different kind of bond. It's almost like people that 
fight in a war together. But you guys, I mean, imagine people that fight for years or three, four years straight in a war. But you guys actually had a one night fight, right? For only one night. One night. That's why I call it the, the, the boot camp because really like I feel so lucky compared to so many people who have not had the same luck. So many mothers that never got to, you know, to see their, their kids come back home. Uh, so many wives who never saw their husbands come back home. Like it really made me think about the horror of kidnapping, about the horror of social violence, about the horror of misinformation, about the horror of communism and guerrillas and terrorism trying to tear through our through our fields and trying to grab our people, the people who are ignorant and, you know, not ignorant, but illiterate and, and turn them into ignorant and hateful people. Some of the smartest countries out there, South Korea, one of them, they have really put a lot of effort. The government has put a lot of effort into building up the middle class. When you have a, a middle class that has opportunities and has enough money to, you know, to give themselves, you know, little pleasures, those are the base of your voters. You got a big chunk of people that understand that communism is not the way. But in our countries where you have a very small middle class and an even smaller, tiny, tiny, tiny high class, and then this huge, poor, poor sector of the population, all those people, they have this um, these feelings inside that are used, like you say, exploited, like you say, by these criminals who are the narco-terrorists and the people who want to take over power. And they use their, use these people to uh, destabilize governments and really bring them down so that can, they, can, um, they can have a government based on uh, total control and, you know, and dictatorship. The sad thing is that uh, these people that promote this ideals, this, this uh, communist ideals, they present this incredible picture of the future and how every, everybody's going to be equal and all that. And they did it to Venezuela. And look at Venezuela today. It's 90% of the people are in extreme poverty. Uh, there's a very, very tiny high class, and that's everyone in the government is at the top. Uh, they're the ones that travel around the world and have all the pleasures and all the money and everything. And so they promised this this perfect, you know, land, this perfect country, and it's turned out to be a nightmare of a country that has fallen apart. And I believe there's no perfect government. There will never be a perfect government or system. Uh, someone will always be at the bottom. Somebody will always be at the top. Somebody will be happy, somebody unhappy. That's just the way life is. There's no such thing as utopia. There are just isn't you know there's no per life is not perfect we're not perfect so therefore uh countries and political systems aren't going to be perfect because we're, we're not perfect all right guys so i hope uh that you learned something from this podcast <laughs> i surely did all right danilo thank you for your story thank you man that was fun that was fun and even though it's a it's a weird memory I feel like every every time that I tell the story, like you said, I don't tell it a lot, but every time that, I, that I'm able to tell it, I feel like I get rid of it a little bit more. Next episode, I'll be talking with TV host and producer Robert Rose of Raw Travel TV about his experience traveling to more than 70 countries around the world and how travel has changed his life for the better. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you hear, make sure to subscribe and share. Thanks.